Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Scott L. Weiss, MD, MSCE, about the article, The Epidemiology of Hospital Death Following Pediatric Severe Sepsis, When, Why, and How Children with Sepsis Die, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in September 2017. Dr. Weiss is an assistant professor in the Division of Critical Care Medicine in the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania in Perlman School of Medicine in Philadelphia, PA. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share, Dr. Weiss? Uh, Nothing that's relevant to the content of this uh, study. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us, Scott. Thank you. Nice to be here. Death is unfortunately a known outcome of sepsis. What uh, knowledge gap were you addressing in this study? Uh, Thank you for that important question. So, yes, unfortunately, it's well known that death is one of the uh, most feared outcomes from sepsis. And although the rate of mortality has declined substantially over the past 50 to 60 years, particularly in children with sepsis. Unfortunately, a high number of children still pass away from sepsis. However, the epidemiology of death in children with sepsis hasn't really been well delineated, particularly as to uh, when children with sepsis die, why they die exactly, and the mode in which they ultimately pass away. And understanding these factors is extremely important to set the appropriate clinical and research priorities because children who die very early in their course of sepsis may have distinct risk factors and pathophysiology in response to therapy than those who die at a later time point. And therefore, there may need to be a different approach either to their care or to the way we study these children to improve their outcomes. So how did you, what did you do in this study? So we capitalized on efforts that were ongoing at both the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and nationwide, and our collaborators at Nationwide Children's Hospital, who had for the past several years prior to uh, embarking on this study, been systematically screening for severe sepsis and septic shock in our emergency department and pediatric intensive care units. And both centers had been collecting data and compiling that data within registries. And so over the years, We accumulated, uh, unfortunately, enough children who passed away from sepsis that we felt like we had uh, enough cases where we could delve into the details of these particular children to try to understand more about timing and cause and mode of death. And so we worked together to establish a priori determined definitions for timing, cause, mode, and attribution of death, and then use the data that we had already collected as well as some additional chart review specific for the details of this study to be able to answer the questions about what was going on as these children were were passing away. So what did you find? So we had hypothesized that we would find that death as a result of refractory shock when children presented with septic shock would be vanishingly small. Uh, It had been our clinical experience amongst all the investigators who were involved in this study that we just don't see those kinds of deaths um, very often anymore, which was in direct contrast to a previously published research study from Dr. Mark Peters' group at Great Ormond Street in the United Kingdom, where they reported that 55% of their septic deaths in their, uh, referred to their pediatric intensive care unit died within 24 hours of referral. And we thought that seemed excessively high based on our clinical experience. However, 
when we actually looked at the data, what we found is that death as a result of refractory shock early on in the course of the septic illness, so within one to three days, was actually much more common than we had hypothesized. So in total, a quarter of the patients, 25%, died within one day of sepsis recognition, a third or 35% within three days. And when we started to think about why there was a disconnect between what we were finding when we were actually looking at the cumulative data and what our clinical instincts had told us, we, we started to realize that the patients who die early on, within one to two days of of coming to medical attention for sepsis, they don't tend to come into contact with a lot of providers. And so any individual provider at a large institution may not see one of these unfortunate cases for one or two or three years, but that doesn't mean they're not occurring. Whereas the patients who tend to die later on, so after, you know, six, seven, ten days in the ICU, tend to touch a lot of different providers as, as people hand off care and, and um, consult with each other. And so those patients tend to be more memorable to more people. So I think it was very important to step back from our, 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 uh, our own personal anecdotes to look at the cumulative data to really inform this question. I, I think that's a fascinating point. And yet even you found about 35% died early in contrast to the study from Great Ormond where it was 55%. Can you explain that difference? Yeah, that's another great question. So there were some important differences, I think, between um, their their study population and, and ours. Probably the, the biggest uh, difference was that the United Kingdom cohort included a fourfold higher proportion of previously healthy patients than, than we included in our study. So in the UK study, 86% of patients were previously healthy. In our study, only 20% of patients were previously healthy children. And that likely reflects that uh, the fact that we, our study was limited to two specialty referral centers where the United Kingdom was looking at more of a population level cohort. And what both groups, both studies noticed, ours and the one from the United Kingdom, was that previously healthy children were much more likely to die early within the first one to two days of uh, sepsis onset than children with comorbid conditions. And so that seemed to be one of the biggest differences in our study populations that, that probably affected the different findings. The other uh, possibility is that about a third of the deaths in the UK study were attributable to, to um, meningococcemia, whereas that was very rare in our population. And we know that meningococcemia tends to produce a more fulminant disease course with a uh, higher risk of early death uh, than some other causes of, of sepsis. So these children who, the, the third or so of your population who died early, died with refractory shock, is that right? Uh, the majority did, yes. So the ones who died early, almost two-thirds died of refractory shock. So what about the ones who died later? What did they die from? You know, you looked at mechanisms of death and modes of death and so forth. So what, the, the children who died later, how, how were they different from the early deaths? So the kids who died, you know, later, somewhere after three days and certainly after seven days, were much more likely to die with persistent multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. So they had this pattern of severe organ dysfunction that seemed to be almost chronic. Uh, it generally didn't worsen, but there was no indication things were getting better. And the overwhelming majority of these children, over three quarters of them, died af uh, after withdrawal or limiting of life-sustaining therapies. And so it's not entirely clear based on our work whether there was a distinct element that caused the death in these children, and it was probably multifactorial. 
it seemed like in up to 90% of those children that sepsis played some role in that the children became much sicker as a result of sepsis and then stayed very sick. They weren't they didn't show um, any significant recovery. But it's very hard because we didn't have, because of the retrospective nature of the study, we didn't have data about the details of why care was limited and ultimately withdrawn. And so it was not clear to us whether it was the uh, underlying, to what extent the underlying comorbid conditions contributed to the decision-making to uh, limit life-sustaining therapies and how much uh, sepsis played into that decision-making. Since your data come from two large academic children's hospitals, do you think the, your findings are generalizable? I think the overall body of literature from, from this study as well as the previous study from the United Kingdom, and there's actually now a third study out of Australia and New Zealand by Dr. Loren Schlockbach that similarly showed about 50% of children who die from sepsis do so within one to two days. Together, those three studies, I think, do support that early deaths uh, from refractory shock have not disappeared in children with sepsis. And in particular, all three studies found that younger age and previously healthy patients were much more likely to die early. And so if you take that data and say, um, how is that applicable to smaller hospitals, community-based hospitals that might see sick children less frequently or, 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 or you know, don't have a greater degree of um, uh, children with, with underlying comorbid conditions, I think that the, the finding that previously healthy younger children who develop sepsis you know, are more likely to die early, I think that's the patient population that's more likely to be cared for by these smaller community hospitals. And so I do think that the finding of previously healthy children dying early in their course of sepsis is probably very generalizable to the greater septic population that may be cared for at community hospitals where the majority of children who develop sepsis are actually cared for, at least initially. It almost sounds like you're describing two different populations that get severe sepsis and septic shock. One is the previously healthy child who comes in and dies fast, and the other is the child with some underlying comorbidity who may come in and linger for a while before decisions are made perhaps to withdraw life support. Yeah, I, I think that's what we're seeing. I think that's, uh, that's well said, and uh, I would agree with that, with that statement. And it's not entirely clear why, you know, previously healthy, slightly younger children with community-acquired infections are much more likely to die early, and other children with comorbid conditions tend to develop more of this chronic condition uh, where they have persistent underlying organ dysfunction that ultimately succumb to, you know, withdrawal of life support. You know, it's interesting. um, There was a a study in, in this month's critical care medicine by a group in Stanford using machine learning techniques to look at different clusters of patients. And it was an adult study, but they identified six distinct clusters of patients who had very different uh, trajectories in the ICU. The most common diagnosis in all six, in five of the six categories was sepsis. But they found one cluster of younger, healthier patients and a couple other clusters that contained patients who were a little bit older with more severe underlying comorbid conditions and who had a very different trajectory from their septic um, illness. And so, you know, we often think that, that pediatric sepsis is very different from adult sepsis, but I think there's some parallels that we're starting to see with, with common causes of, of death and these patterns where there tends to be patients who either succumb very early to refractory shock 
or who tend to survive that initial shock phase, but then move on to this chronic, persistent organ dysfunction state. And those tend to be patients with kind of more underlying comorbid conditions, which I think alters the way that, you know, we, we will need to think about how to study sepsis. Uh, that maybe it's not a single entity where we can kind of lump everyone together and, and all the sepsis deaths are the same. There may be very distinct, um, if there are distinct risk factors, there may be distinct pathobiology underlying that, that we need to sort of tease out a little bit more. I was just going to ask you, what does your study mean in terms of how we treat children with sepsis and what do we do with clinical trials if we've got sort of two different phenotypes or trajectories or whatever. I mean, you're, you're looking only at the non-survivors, and obviously that's a numerator with a hopefully huge denominator since the majority of children with sepsis survive. But still, how does this play out in terms of clinical investigation and how do we manage our kids going forward? Yeah, another great question. So I think one of the most important points is that our, our EMS, our, our emergency department and um, you know, critical care, acute care, hospital providers need to be keenly aware that when things go bad for children with sepsis, particularly when they are previously healthy and have a new acute insult, um, infectious insult, that they tend to go bad very quickly. And so, you know, in the most recent version of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, the very first statement was that sepsis is a medical emergency that should be thought of akin to trauma and stroke and myocardial infarction. And I think our data, uh, you know, rings true to that for kids with sepsis as well, that it, this is not something that, uh, not necessarily something that someone may be able to move from a community ED to, uh, to a more referral center, that when things go bad, they do so within hours. And so attention to aggressive uh, resuscitation, uh, following a good bundled practice with early antibiotics is, uh, is extremely important. From a research standpoint, I think there are a few uh, important points to be noted from, from ours and, and our data and the other studies that I had, had mentioned. The first is that our approach to trials might need to change. So if we are consistently enrolling children who have sepsis into trials once they're available to us, so some substantial time has passed because it's too uh, you know, uh, logistically challenging to get them early on, say in the emergency department, then we may be missing a large number of the adverse events that a trial intervention is actually trying to improve. And so trying to reduce the number of deaths and, and, and bad outcomes, if many of them are occurring before people are even enrolled in the trial, that's potentially problematic. The second is that we need to be cognizant of when we're doing new trials, what we're actually, the pathobiology that we're trying to target. So are we studying a resuscitative therapy that would better target patients with early refractory shock, or are we studying an intervention that's more inclined to palliate or reverse organ dysfunction? And so understanding the pathobiology that your particular intervention is attempting to target may alter the timing uh, of, the, of the patients uh, you enroll. And then last is the use of all-cause mortality as, a, um, as an outcome measure. And while the field is moving further away from using mortality solely as an outcome measure and including more functional morbidity measures as part of that, I think is good, but we also need to be cautious about just including all-cause mortality because many of the patients who die, particularly in sepsis, are doing so in a state of chronic organ dysfunction with underlying comorbid conditions where their death may be as much or more attributable to their underlying condition than it is to the sepsis event itself. Right, and you're not going to target that with 
a new type of therapy or um, something, you know, a new clinical investigation is not likely to target that population effectively. And the early deaths are so early that we it'll be difficult to target them. That's exactly right. You have laid out a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that it's certainly a challenge. This is why I think it's important to understand the epidemiology of the outcome that we're all working so hard to, one of the outcomes we're all working so hard to prevent, both in in clinical practice and at administrative and health policy levels, as well as in research. Right. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Uh, No, other than to really, you know, thank my co-authors, particularly Fran Balamuth and Julie Fitzgerald and uh, Neil Thomas, Mark Hall, Jen Mazinski, Vinay Nadkarni, Jenny Bush, Josie Hensley, who without without them, this work wouldn't have been possible. And uh, and thank you very much to the Society for the opportunity to talk a little bit more about the implications of our findings. It was great having you today, Scott. Thank you so much, Dr. Parker. I appreciate it. We have been talking with Dr. Scott Weiss from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia about the article, The Epidemiology of Hospital Death Following Pediatric Severe Sepsis, When, Why, and How Children with Sepsis Die, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in September 2017. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Attend the 47th Critical Care Congress to be held February 25th to 28th, 2018 in San Antonio, Texas, USA. The Society's Congress is the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year and features innovative learning experiences that encompass the full range of developments in critical care. Register at www.sccm.org congress. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM. Dr. Margaret Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email i critical care at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.